we're going to go ahead and get started. Well, welcome everybody. Glad you're here this morning. You know, each year at Redemption Church, we take the four Sundays leading up to Advent to study the lives of four great saints of the church. Uh, and saints actually are, are like a huge part of the Christian tradition for pretty much everybody except Protestants. We try to ignore the saints. It's too Catholic or something. Um, but at Redemption, we, do, we study them these four weeks every year, not to like unduly venerate them, but just hoping that as we tell, our lo- tell their stories, um, their, their stories will speak to us about our own lives and how to be faithful in our time. And our final saint this year is Saint Anthony of Egypt. He's the first of what is often called the Desert Fathers, which is this long tradition reaching clear back to when Israel was always being ruled over by some foreign power, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, Persians, of course, Alexander the Great and the Macedonians. You know, Alexander didn't just want to conquer people. He wanted to unite the whole world under one culture, Hellenism, um, the, the art, literature, and politics and language of Greek culture. And the Jewish people resisted this. They saw Hellenism as a threat to their Hebrew identity. And then, of course, came the Roman Empire, which was a little different. It was fairly tolerant of other cultures and religions, as long as people would combine their local gods with the the Roman pantheon of gods, it was fine. And so the Romans really didn't understand these Jews who only worshipped one god. Plus, their God was, was strange. Their, their God didn't want to be placated, but seemed to want a relationship with humanity. Their God wanted to love and be loved. And the Jewish people, something's really happening with the lights right now that I have no idea what it is, but I just wanted to name it. It's, if you're seeing lights going off and on, that's actually happening. That's not your... <laughs> these Jewish people, they were strange. They had genuine affection for their God. And they, they called their God good and holy. Yes, they're back on now. And the Roman gods, they weren't like this at all. They weren't, you would never call a Roman god good. They were petulant and cruel, always fighting and using, toying with humanity. And so worship for them was really about appeasing these gods so they'd kind of just leave you alone, you know? And, and, and this meant that refusing to worship them could induce the, the ire of the gods. And so the, the Romans didn't like these Jews who wouldn't worship their gods. So they, they began to persecute them. And really the history of Palestine from Alexander the Great to Constantine was a, a struggle between these Hellenizing pressures of Greco-Roman culture and this Jewish identity and culture and language and tradition. And at that point in their history, there, there were really two big Jewish factions. There were the Hebrews who kept all the old customs, the old dress and language. And then there were the Hellenists who were observant Jews, but who had assimilated to Greek custom and dress and language. And Christianity was sort of born into that conflict between these two groups. And it turns out that the, those two groups, the only thing they, they could get together on was persecuting Christians. They would join with the Romans to, to make life hard on the Christians. And Rome was like that. Nero, of course, was the worst. He once torched the city of Rome 
Just burn it to the ground so they could rebuild it the way he wanted. And it was very surprised when people didn't like that he just burned their whole house and neighborhood down, right? And so his solution was to blame the Christians, which he did, and then began killing them for sport. He was the one who would dress Christians in furs and then set hunting dogs on them. Or he would burn them as human torches to light his garden parties. Nero killed a lot of Christians, including Peter and the Apostle Paul. Then came Domitian, who passed strict laws against Christianity and Judaism. Um, and the book of Revelation, if you remember, was written under the, the while well, Domitian was the leader of Rome. It's a book in which John called Rome the Great Harlot. And then came Trajan, who was a little more re reasonable. He said, don't go looking for the Christians. I mean, if you catch them, at least offer them a chance to recant. And then if they don't, you can punish them or whatever. And so for the next 200 years or so, if you were living as a Christian in Rome, anytime you got in a dispute with a neighbor over, say, land or a contract or some work or finances, all that person had to do was accuse you of being a Christian. And then they could drag you in front of the magistrate, and you would, you would be forced to either recant or, or be killed. And, and Christians just lived their lives knowing this was a possibility, and it happened all the time. But there was this, this weird thing. They had this hope in resurrection, which meant that they could live without fear of death. And then came Emperor Constantine. If you remember him, he was in a fight to unify the Roman Empire. He, he ruled half, and this guy named Maxentius ruled the other half. And the day before this big battle, Constantine supposedly had this dream that said, you need to fight in the name of the Christian God, which was either a dream or just like an attempt to freak out his rival Maxentius by aligning himself with this mystical cult that had no fear of death. Either way, they painted the Cairo symbol, the two first letters of Christ's name on their shields, and marched into the Battle of Milvan Bridge and won. And from that day on, Constantine considered himself a Christian of sorts. And one year later, he issued the Edict of Milan, abolishing laws against Christianity. And within a decade, the church came under the control of the Roman Empire. And then suddenly, this narrow gate that Jesus had talked about became so wide, the entire Roman Empire was just galloping through. Without delving too deeply into the life of Christ and the teachings of the church, and, and many Christians sort of thought the church was losing their identity. And our saint for today, Saint Anthony, lived through this time of massive change. When Roman power became this big temptation, when luxury and affluence began to overtake the church and Christians were, were caught up in the, the Roman client-patron system, this system of quid pro quo, of patronage and bestowing public honor and gifts on people, and even caught up in the violence uh, and, and politics of the Roman Empire. And so there was at this time this question looming over the church, how could one be Christian and Roman at the same time? How, how, how do we do it when the whole culture adopts Christianity and the church joins the powers of the day, when, when Christianity and Hellenism kind of form this merger and Christianity becomes the de facto civil religion for a violent empire? What should sincere Christians do? 
It's a question that's not irrelevant to us today. How can one be a Christian and an American at the same time? I mean, our, our superpower status is quite similar. Christianity is deeply woven into our culture. How do we respond when the church becomes sort of um, joined with, allied with economic powers, political powers? When Christianity becomes this civil religion for an empire that does a lot of violence. St. Anthony the Great, he lived in this kind of a situation. And I think he has much to teach us about how we should act in our own time. Anthony was born in a little village called Coma on the banks of the Nile in Egypt in 251 AD to a family of devout Christians. This was while the, the Roman Empire ruled the whole Mediterranean. And then his parents died when he was just a late teenager, and he inherited a small fortune with which to care for himself and his sister, both of whom were Christians. And then on the, on the way to church one day, Anthony was reflecting on how the disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. And when he showed up at church, um, they were talking about the rich young ruler and and how the early church sold all their possessions and gave them to the poor. And Anthony became convinced that God was trying to speak to him. And so he took the prosperous 300-acre farm his parents left him and gave it to the villagers who worked the farm every day. And then he sold his household and possessions and gave the money to the poor, keeping just enough to care for he and his sister. And then he found this wise old Christian man and submitted himself to his teaching. And as the story goes... After just a few days, the high of all he had done wore off, and Anthony started thinking, what have I done? Like, I just made a huge mistake. And um, he was filled with regret, and the old man apparently said to him, well, all you can do now is fast and pray, read the scriptures, and wait for God to lead you on. And so he began to pursue a life of solitude and prayer and discipline, seeking out wisdom and striving to be learned and wholly devoted to God. Anytime Anthony heard about some well-educated person in the region, he'd go camp out in their yard and just bug them until they agreed to teach him. And he'd learn everything he could learn from them go back home. And then if he heard about someone who was just wise, he'd go stay with them and learn to imitate their life. And if he learned about somebody who was really virtuous, he would go submit to them and watch them and take on their habits. And he just traveled all around like this, often sleeping outside, sleeping on the ground, going wherever he had to go to soak up knowledge and wisdom and discipline from all the leading figures of his day in that region. And he began to sort of integrate everything that he was learning into his own life. At the same time, he's like working on farms, doing manual labor to support himself keeping only what he needed to live and giving everything else to the poor. And after 15 or 20 years of this, he was, he was kind of, you know, growing. He knew pretty much everything all the smarties in his day and age knew. Plus, he'd been traveling around all this time in different villages and farms and towns and cities. He had all these famous friends and teachers who grew to respect him. All the townsfolk knew him and loved him. As a, as a devout and, and genuine and sincere man who is also disciplined and hardworking with this passion for God and this passion for knowledge and wisdom. 
And so St. Anthony became one of the wisest and most respected men in all of Egypt. But at the same time, all around him was this Roman influence, this affluence just growing, lust for power and glory and advancement. It was a great temptation for Anthony, who was now quite you know, smart, well-educated, pretty shrewd. He could have cleaned up in this culture, and he was tempted to. In fact, he began calling these, these temptations his demons. We still sort of talk this way. We all fight our own demons. It comes from the word daimon, or spirit, these spirits that tempt us, like, should I run this way or that? Anthony's demon to fight was this lure of wealth and power and prestige and, and, you know, affluence. Sound familiar to anyone? And the privilege of Rome, it just surrounded him and was this daily temptation, the demon that he had to face. And so he decided to leave the city and he moved to an old abandoned cemetery and stopped working, just lived on bread that people would bring out to him. But the demons followed Anthony. And so he moved further out into the desert. And if you know the geography at all, the Nile Valley here, Near the banks, it's this rich, black, fertile soil, but further out, it's just sand and desert. And he went out to the sand and desert to do battle with the demons who followed him. And he began to develop, um, using you know, the wisdom and knowledge and teaching, a way of fighting them that came to be called desert spirituality. It's a set of Christian practices like silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, meditation, contemplation, and testing of oneself. And through these practices, he began to, you know, make some headway against these demons he was fighting. It's, um, desert spirituality, is a, it's based in fleeing from the world for a season and, and seeking God without the distractions of everyday life. So, for instance, every year our, our youth group goes on uh, a fall retreat, and retreating is a practice pioneered by St. Anthony as part of desert spirituality. In fact, Anthony is actually considered to be the first Christian monastic, the first Christian monk. He was separated away to, to pursue wisdom and discipline and prayer and contemplation. Every once in a while, though, someone from the villages would have a problem and they'd head out to find Anthony and take him several days to find him, although they would often find that the journey was really good for them. It gave them time to think and pray about what to do. So the struggle itself was energizing. Eventually they'd find him, they'd stay a few days, he'd help them with stuff, sometimes even pray for them or heal them. He healed a few people. And as more and more people started coming out to see him, Anthony got tired of it, so he decided to move farther and farther into the desert. He wasn't playing hard to get. He was just trying to avoid the temptations of the Roman Empire. It was just so enticing to him the influence that they were having over everyone's faith. But eventually people would find him. They'd talk to him for a while, and then he'd move farther out and try to escape them, all the while battling his own demons and the lure of Roman wealth. And finally he realized he really had to get away if he was going to win this fight. And so he moved into the tower of this old abandoned military fort, like way out in the desert. And he filled in the entrance with rocks so nobody could get in. And he lived alone in this tower for 20 years. Nobody for miles around, just living on bread and water. People would come looking for him but could never find him. For years, nobody knew where he even was until finally some men stumbled onto 
his tower, and they thought they heard him in, inside. They start yelling up to him, but he, he wouldn't answer. And so they just camped out. They stayed there for a few days, calling to him all the while and sleeping on the ground at the base of this tower. I'm, I don't know if you've ever spent the night in the desert. Anybody spent the night in the, in the desert? It's weird. The place, like, comes alive at night. It's creepy. And so this is what the guys are sleeping in. There's there's coming alive, and they're like hearing voices and stuff, getting scared. Just sure that the voices are coming from inside the tower. They thought maybe bandits were attacking Anthony. And so um, they thought they heard an argument at at one point. They They were afraid for him, they said. So they made a makeshift ladder and climbed up through an opening in the top, peered through the hole in the floor, and nobody was there but Anthony alone, praying. They were just sure it was his famous demons that they heard that plagued him. And so they asked him, finally, shout down to him, did you hear that? Was was it demons attacking you? And Anthony was like, yeah, I didn't really hear anything last night. And so he told them, the demons make their onslaughts against those who are cowardly. Sign yourselves, therefore, with the cross and depart boldly and let these demons make fools of themselves. It's kind of the first sick burn by a spiritual director, you know, (laughs) ever in history. And so St. Anthony became kind of famous for doing battle with demons and for helping other people to face their own spiritual demon. And soon word spread that Anthony the Great had been found and people came out in, in droves. And of course, he would just ignore them and they'd have to sleep on the ground And listen to him singing, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let them that hate him flee before his holy face. All night long he'd pray and argue with his demons. And so many people came, he finally um, started to allow a few other monks to live nearby him. And if they promised not to bother him that much, he agreed to lead and teach them so that when people came out, they could go to the monks and and not bother him so much. Um, And over the course of his life, he became one of the most important and influential Christians since really the days of Peter and John and the apostles. He was the first Christian to really go deeply into silence and solitude and to chart this course that became desert spirituality. Again, it's this way of communing with Jesus in times of acute trouble and distress. Because Jesus also fled to the desert for solitude and fasting and prayer. He also did battle with his own demons in the desert, his own temptations. And so thousands and thousands joined Anthony in the desert. He didn't send them all the way. He, he actually talked to a few of them. He was known as a really faithful friend. But in the Christian tradition, the major movement in response to Constantine's grip on Christianity, the kind of counter-narrative became these desert fathers. And it has survived in our tradition because of this. Anthony, if you think about it, he was 35 when he moved to the tower, spent 20 years there, that's 55, when the people found him and the monks began to live nearby. And so if he was born in 251 AD, this is about 60 years later, about the same time that Constantine went to war with the sign of Christ on on his shields, invoking for the first time ever the name of Christ in war. It had never been done. 
A year later, there's the Edict of Milan, that's 313, legalizing Christianity. Very soon, Christianity would be the civil religion for the Roman Empire. And, and one way to read this is just sort of that the Spirit of God knew God needed someone out there in the desert who didn't live off the wealth of Rome. So that when the hordes of Romans began converting to Christianity without any catechism, without even sometimes leaving their pagan gods behind, in response to this, tens of thousands of Christians walked into the desert to kind of preserve this faith for a while until it could come back and speak to the people, which it speaks to this day. And and they came out asking Anthony, how can we maintain our Christian identity? How can we still see God? How do we rely on Christ when Rome promises us everything we've ever wanted? And Anthony would teach him what he had learned throughout his life. It's a teaching we also find in the book of James, who writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. James builds this contrast between wisdom. This is what Anthony was chasing with wisdom. Wisdom from above or below. Wisdom below, he says, is born of selfishness and ambition. It's, you know, I want, I want what they have. That's envy. And I'll do anything it takes to get it. That's ambition. And James just says, look, we know where this goes. It takes us to competition, to boastfulness, to lying, to wickedness of every kind. He calls it devilishness. Anthony would have too. And there are these demons we all have to fight, no matter the era or the empire. These spirits that disorder our lives, our loves. And James says, it's a great line, he says, what you sow in the soul, you'll reap in the body, you'll reap in in the flesh, in your actual life. But a harvest of righteousness, righteousness, remember, is just right right relating. It's, It's sown in peace, shalom, right ordering. Right relating comes from getting things ordered right. And this means we have to to learn to subvert the influence of empire over the imagination. It disorders the imagination. We have to somehow counteract the lure of wealth and influence in order to find peace and healthy relationships. Anthony's response was he gave away his entire fortune. I, I, I don't think, you know, desert spirituality even would tell us you do not have to just cash out and give everything away. But you do have to do battle with envy, with ambition. You know, we live in a culture that's just, you know, we're just throttled with comparison. 
that breeds ambition and boasting and stretching the truth and disordered lives. Eventually, it even leads to violence. James says, those conflicts and disputes among you, he says, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. And then he calls them all adulterers. Actually, the word um, is adulteresses. It's a feminine form, probably used because Israel is often portrayed as a, as a bride, a female who's given to God in marriage, but is often unfaithful. So this is, it's really saying this isn't meant to be um, an individualistic thing. This is a corporate thing. It's about us as a people. God is making exhaustive claims on us as Christians. We don't get to fool around with other powers, other empires who want to shape our imaginations. He says, adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's an interesting idea. Friendship with the world breeds enmity with with God. And the, the world here, it, it doesn't mean um, just like non-religious things. And it doesn't just mean earth or, or cosmos. It's, it's really talking about the source of life, where you draw wisdom from, wisdom for living. Is it from, from above or from below? The world refers to wisdom from below, this, in their time, Hellenized way of doing things. In, in our time, it's, it's, you know, it'd be the Americanized capitalist, consumerist way of life. This constant craving and chasing everything bigger, better, higher, stronger, faster. And James says, friendship with the world puts us at odds with God. In the ancient world, friendship, you know, it, it, was, it was a really meaningful thing. Yeah, um, individualism kind of wasn't possible in the ancient world. You needed friends to survive. And to, to, to have a friendship was to have an alliance, you know? Um, we see the world the same way. We have the same goals. We're pulling in the same direction together. And James says you can't have that kind of situation, that, that alliance, that friendship with these cultures that are pulling in a completely different direction. If we do this, we, we become enemies of God. We just are, are moving a different way, a different direction. His advice was, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you in due time. It's kind of this litany of exhortations. Submit yourself to God. I mean, think about what you're submitted to. Who gets to speak into your life? St. Anthony, he was traveling around trying to glean wisdom, but, but through all of it, 
um, he was risking everything. Like everything was on the table. It makes me wonder as we're submitting, like what, what are we act, actually risking to submit our lives to God? Resist the devil, he says. Resist. Every, everyone fights their own demons, things that really could wreck us or co-opt our lives, things we often just sort of fall into without even deciding to. Are we resisting? Do we, do we fight back? Or are we just kind of resigned? St. Anthony battled his demons. He's often, you'll, you'll see, if you see a saint pictured with a pig, it might be St. Anthony. He was often drawn like this. You can see the pig over there to the right. That is his demon, the demon that's always with him fighting. He, he lampoons it as a pig, right? And, and his desert spirituality was a, a training ground for how to live with the pigs, you know, how to live with this, you know, this temptation. And his solution was you cannot be resigned. You have to resist it. Are we resisting? We're just giving in. And then he says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. you know, Christianity at its simplest form is a drawing near to God through Christ. Anthony went all the way out in the desert. I, I don't think we all have to do that, but we need to do something. We need to have some habits, some rhythms of engaging with God intentionally. You don't become a disciple just like through osmosis. You become a capitalist through osmosis. It takes deep training to become a Christian. What are your habits, rhythms, and practices of drawing near to God? You need some. We all do. Then he says, cleanse your hand. This, this is a, a, the Jewish way of saying, stop working evil with your hands. Right? What are our habits, the things we actually do with our bodies? How are these things shaping us? Purify your hearts, he says. Don't just look like a Christian, but cultivate a, an authentic desire to connect to God and other people. To be Christ's hands and feet in the world wholeheartedly. James was writing to a people who kind of had one foot in both worlds. Called them double-minded. Anybody feel that? I, I feel that a ton in my life. Desert spirituality, it's about tra training ourselves slowly over the years. I mean, you kind of measure this growth in decades. Training ourselves to have a, a pure heart that desires the kingdom of God. And then he says, humble yourselves. You can't be obsessed with, you know, winning, with being a big deal, and follow Jesus at the same time. They're just going two radically different directions. We have to humble ourselves to walk in the direction Jesus is taking us. This is kind of James's version of desert spirituality that, that Anthony embraced. Submitting to God, drawing near to God, resisting the devil, cleansing your hands, purifying your hearts, humble yourselves. Anthony sort of wired those things into this pattern of living called desert spirituality. And these practices of silence and solitude prayer and fasting and meditation, contemplation and testing. And what he discovered there changed the, the face of Christianity forever. And this was his discovery, in essence, that, that if we'll take James' um, advice, through some sort of 
simple practices that we just wire to our calendar, to our days and weeks and months and years. Through these disciplines that, that Anthony played with and kind of brought back and, and taught other people. And if we'll do the hard work of facing our own demons, which is, you know, sounds exciting, but it's not. It's just humiliating. Then if we'll do this, James says, you can become friends with God. And not only that, you'll become friends with God and then the means by which other people find friendship with God. Anthony once wrote, our life and our death is with our neighbor. I think it would take a guy living 20 years by himself to really figure out how deeply that's true. Our life and our death is with our neighbor. If we gain our brother, he writes, we have gained God. And God most often shows up in the spaces between friends. It's just that the only people who see God in that place and recognize God as God in that place are the ones who have done some kind of training to see it. Silence, meditation, study, prayer, those kind of things. We don't go in the desert, um, you might say, so much to see God, but to battle our own demons so we can come home and see each other, be good friends, seeing God in each other and in the ordinary events of our lives. That's what Anthony taught. St. Anthony walked into the desert at age 35, and then he lived another 70 years. He was 105 years old when he died in 356 AD. And his life offers us an example of how to respond to the challenges of friendship with the world, how to respond to the demons we all must fight. And his answer is not the only answer, of course, but it is an important answer. And he teaches us not so much to run away from the world, but to arrange our lives so that we have a little space to escape the intense demands of empire, the promises of culture. A little space to think, to pray, to pursue knowledge and wisdom, to embrace rhythms that are um, human, humane, and humanizing. These things like silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, meditation, contemplation, and even some testing of ourselves. Not to av avoid those things, but to embrace them, to face our own demons, and finally to live in friendship with God and solidarity with all humans, especially the poor. And as we head into Advent, you guys, Advent begins next week. This is, this is really where we're heading. We're going to spend the next four weeks or so trying to carve out some space, maybe facing some of our demons, but chasing this, this desert spirituality a little bit that Anthony talked about. So today we give thanks for St. Anthony and the desert fathers who taught us to flee to the wilderness and find silence and solitude, to find the strength to battle our own demons and to embrace full citizenship in the kingdom of God to find deep friendship with God and with each other. So God bless St. Anthony the Great. Amen.
Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the Desert Fathers and um, their example, just their innovation, their bravery. And we're here living in America thousands of years later. And I pray that we could see the wisdom embedded in their stories, in their lives. And we're not aesthetics, God. We all, we have our own lives, our own battles to fight. Um, but we do need you. So we need you to help us figure out how to live our lives so that we don't hurt ourselves and each other and damage the world. And so I pray that we would pay attention to the life of St. Anthony today. As we think about moving into Advent and this day crescendo that's going to last the month of December until Christmas Eve, trying to just close things down until we're still and quiet and ready to receive you once again. Pray that you would be with us over the coming month. That we'd be finding space in our lives for you. Amen. If you would stand, please. We're going to receive communion now. The way we do it, redemption is we're just released row by row. You come forward and you're offered a plate of bread and a cup. Just take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. As you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, I will remember or respond however you feel comfortable. The reason we do this is um, on... His last night with his disciples, Jesus did this with his friends. He had them all share in the same loaf of bread and cup. Just pass it around, and he said, okay, so this is symbolic. The, the bread is like my body. The, the cup is, is like my blood, my life. He said, whenever you gather, receive my life into your life. Be made out of the stuff that I'm made out of. And then go out and be my hands and feet in the world. He said, whenever you gather, do this. And so this is why we receive communion each week. It's kind of a, it's a strange thing Christians do, but we just do it in remembrance of Christ. And it's also why we don't put any limits on it. Anyone who calls on the name of Christ can join us in, at the table. But first, let's pray. Let's pray a blessing on the elements. Oh God, we ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?